Hi, I'm Avi Mayer, AJC's Managing Director of Public Affairs. Anti-Semitism is back with a vengeance. At AJC, we don't believe in being bystanders. We believe in action and advocacy that drives results. Every day, my colleagues and I work to collect data on anti-Semitism, engage with decision makers at all levels of government, and communicate the urgency of the problem to millions around the world. Join us as we fight anti-Jewish hate and take on those who threaten Israel. Your gift to AJC before December 31st will be matched dollar for dollar. To support our work today, you can visit AJC.org slash donate. Or you can text AJC donate to 52886. That's AJC space donate to 52886. You can also find this information in our show notes. Thank you. And welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear Pashman. This past weekend, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett landed in the United Arab Emirates for a historic visit, the first Israeli Prime Minister to be welcomed to the Arab country. He spent four hours with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, two hours longer than was originally scheduled, and released a message before returning home that he was, quote, very optimistic that this relationship can set an example of how we can make peace here in the Middle East. Here to discuss the significance of Bennett's unprecedented trip is retired Ambassador Mark Sievers, director of AJC Abu Dhabi, the Sydney Learner Center for Arab-Jewish Understanding. As a colleague, I will refer to him on a first-name basis. Mark, welcome to People of the Pod. Manya, thank you so much. Glad to be here. So I have to ask, in an age where there are so many modes of communication, Zoom, WhatsApp, email, I won't even go through the whole list. What is the significance of the prime minister actually setting foot on Emirati soil? Hasn't there been a lot of diplomacy already? Yeah, sure. There's been a lot of diplomacy already. There's the foreign minister Lapid visited Abu Dhabi last summer and he was in Dubai as well. There is an Israeli ambassador on the ground. There is an Emirati ambassador in Israel. And there have been many, many communications and channels and discussions. But I believe that particularly in the Middle East, that personal relations really still count for a great deal. And personal relationships between leaders, really, there's no substitute for a face-to-face -face encounter getting to know each other. You can't really do that. You know, you can have a Zoom call and maybe you establish some kind of rapport but it's not nearly the same thing as doing it in person. Plus, I think if you talk about, you know, breaking down taboos, I know Israeli leaders have been going to Arab capitals since Menachem Begin went to Cairo way back when in public, and there were secret visits going all the way back to, you know, the pre-state period. But still, it is striking to have the prime minister of Israel appear jointly with the crown prince of Abu Dhabi and with national flags showing behind them and clearly having a kind of personal engagement that has a great significance, I think, symbolically. 
at least to the citizens of the Emirates who see it. And hopefully it has some effect on the broader region as well. So, yeah, it's important. You are a former ambassador and diplomat. How important are the friendships? How important is the friendship between two individuals when it comes to the diplomacy between nations? So, you know, there are a couple of different views of this in the diplomatic profession. There's one sort of the realist view, which is that nations have interests and not friendships. And yet that's not really true. On some level, you know, there's an element of truth to that if you want to be really, you know, hard-boiled about it. And friendships don't necessarily prevent political differences from emerging because countries have different interests. But all that said, I think the development of genuine personal relationship is very important. And being able to reach somebody in an emergency, you know, in the middle of the night or whatever, and knowing that they'll take your call and already having established some kind of rapport really is very important. And that really did not exist before the Abraham Accords, between these two countries at least. Well, yes and no. So there were channels between Israel and the Emirates, as there have been between Israel and much of the Arab world for decades. But other than Egypt and Jordan, which have peace treaties and formal relations, those channels were generally conducted covertly or in secret without, you know, public announcements and so forth. Over the last few years, that those what I was calling barriers or taboos began to erode in the Gulf. And we saw while I was ambassador, uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu was the guest of the late Sultan Qaboos here in Oman. And there were a number of Israeli ministers, cabinet ministers that attended different conferences in various Gulf capitals, certainly in Abu Dhabi, but also in Manama, Bahrain, and elsewhere. So there have been contacts in various channels, but it really does take the establishment of a formal relationship to have a head of state visit. So what are the topics of mutual concern for the two countries or the region, really? Well, you know, I think there's a tendency in Washington or maybe New York to look at this through the prism of the Iranian threat. And yet, when you talk to Emirati officials, and when I've spoken to the Israeli ambassador in Abu Dhabi, um, that's not what they want to emphasize. They want to emphasize new opportunities in commercial cooperation, cooperation in technology. Now, in combating climate change, there's a whole new agenda that's being developed. And there's this agreement to establish a joint research and development fund that came out of uh, Prime Minister Bennett's visit, and tourism, of course. And there have been, you know, several hundred thousand Israelis, I think, who've visited the Emirates, primarily Dubai, since these agreements were signed. Much of that stopped or slowed down during the COVID pandemic, but, you know, hopefully it's now back to some degree. I think Israel would like to see more Emiratis come and visit Israel, and the same for Bahrain and Morocco. And AJC is advancing this through the Project Interchange as well. So we're working on a program to bring a group to Israel. So. so I'm glad you mentioned that they talk in Washington primarily about the Iranian threat. Is that because that's what America has to gain from this relationship? And let me just follow up with you know, what does our nation have to gain from nurturing these relationships? Well, I'm not sure that's quite right. I mean, certainly Iran is a complex 
problem that's on the international agenda, not just on the regional agenda. And the nuclear negotiations are ongoing, but they have not so far produced much of an indication of Iranian flexibility or interest in returning to a nuclear agreement along the lines of the JCPOA. So that's definitely on the international agenda. And I think there's often a tendency in Washington, let's say, to look at regional issues through the prism of, you know, threats and conflict and so forth, because we still have a big military presence in the region and because we have been engaged there in a sustained way for the last 20 years plus militarily. So, you know, there's a tendency to look at it through that prism. But I think really the U.S. interest is in peace and stability and how to manage the Iranian issue cuts multiple ways. And I think it's pretty well known that the Israeli government is opposed to the nuclear agreement, didn't like it in the first place, does not want to see it revived, certainly doesn't want to see sanctions lifted on Iran. And so there is not full convergence between the United States and Israel on that particular point. And the Emiratis are, you know, on the one hand, very worried about Iran, but on the other hand, they have their own important commercial relationship with Iran. There's a large Iranian commercial presence in, in Dubai, and there's been a lot of reporting about Emirati banks funding Iranian commercial activity. And so it's a really complex knot of questions. But I think when you dig down a bit on this relationship, what the leaders on both sides really want to see is a productive, cooperative relationship that delivers for their own citizens and for the people of the region. That's where the emphasis is. You mentioned the business with Iranians. I imagine that is a point of tension between the two nations. What other points of tension do still remain between Israel and the Emirates? And are those points of tension part of the diplomatic conversation now? Or is the relationship at this point really focused on what the two can agree upon? I mean, in other words, is it too early to take on the difficult issues? I think leaders have to determine how to manage the complex net of issues that exist on every bilateral agenda. I think it's pretty clear that at least in public, both on the Emirati side and the Israeli side, they want to emphasize the positive agenda, the cooperation, the development of technology, you know, sort of soft power uh, being for the benefit of the region. There is this huge project that's planned in Jordan, a huge solar plant that will supply electricity to Israel in return for additional water that will be provided to Jordan. That will take some years to, you know, bring online. But that's a very concrete example of the kinds of areas of cooperation. On Iran, I think it's really tricky because, as I said, the UAE worries about a, an Iranian, a, a very aggressive Iranian presence just across the water from them. It's, you know, I don't know the exact mileage, but it really isn't very far from Dubai to the Iranian coast. And there are the three islands that were occupied by Iran at the time that the UAE established independence in the early 1970s. There's a whole net of issues. And there's the war in Yemen, which UAE was an active participant in the Arab coalition, the Saudi-led Arab coalition, although they have gradually withdrawn their military forces from that. But at the same time, they have to be very careful because Iran's a big neighbor and it's a close neighbor. 
Israel, I think, doesn't have a lot of maneuver room when it comes to Iran because Iran is, you know, implacably hostile. Implacably hostile in an ideological sense because when you look at it concretely, there's no objective reason that there should be any conflict between Iran and Israel. They don't share a border. They don't have any land disputes. Their economies operate in different directions. They're not competing for much of anything. And there's a past under the Shah when Iran and Israel had a fairly good relationship and certainly an active dialogue. But that changed with the Iranian revolution and Iran has subsequently been just implacably hostile. And so Israel doesn't really have the option that the Emirates has of having a dialogue with Iran or doing business with Iran in a way that may give Iran some vested interest in stability. So it, it's very different. They both perceive a threat, but they have to perceive it and manage it quite differently. What about the conflict with the Palestinians and the conflict with Hamas and other Palestinian terrorists that are launching attacks on Israel whenever they please? From a perspective as a diplomat, should that come up in these conversations from your perspective? What's the best strategy? Yeah, I don't think it's for me to say what Israel and the UAE should talk about or shouldn't talk about. I think there's, on the Emirati side, they're very proud of the fact that their quid pro quo for normalizing relations with Israel was former Prime Minister Netanyahu's decision to freeze and shelve the extension of Israeli sovereignty over large parts of the West Bank. And they felt that that was something that was a significant achievement that should have been appreciated by the Palestinian leadership, and it wasn't, or at least in terms of the public reaction. Rather than praise them for that, the Palestinian leadership chose to condemn them for entering into this agreement with Israel at all. So I think they feel burned by that uh, to some extent. I think, you know, depending on who you talk to in the Emirates, there's certainly people who say, you know, having a good relationship with Israel gives us the possibility of influencing Israeli policies on some of these issues, and we can help moderate Israeli actions if needed. And there are others who say, you know, we're tired of the Palestinians and it's not really relevant. You know, we're looking after our own interests and when they are ready to see the benefits of this, they're welcome to join it. So you get sort of different reactions depending on who you talk to. Whether it should be, I suspect it shouldn't be a top-tier issue at this point because in a way for the Emiratis, it is this kind of sore point because they've been condemned by the Palestinian Authority. And so I think they feel insulted to some extent. And from the Israeli position, they want to deal with the Palestinians as Palestinians. I, they've always been kind of reluctant to enter into a process that has a lot of Arab states telling the Palestinians or advising them to do this or do that when they're negotiating with Israel. So the history of this is that Israel has certainly preferred to deal with the Palestinians bilaterally. So at this point, I would say probably not. That's a long way to get to that point, though. Sorry. You mentioned the quid pro quo of pulling back on annexation. And I'm just curious, was the sale of 35 jets by the U.S. to the UAE also considered a quid pro quo? Because that sale may not go through now, right? Technically, it's not. I mean, everyone's denied it was a quid pro quo. But certainly after the agreement was announced, 
There was some consternation in Israel in the defense establishment that Prime Minister Netanyahu hadn't consulted them in this process. And the sale offer came from the United States, obviously. But I think it's pretty clear that Netanyahu had to give it his blessing before the U.S. you know, made the offer to the Emiratis. So strictly speaking, it was not a quid pro quo, but certainly it was part of the total picture as this deal was put together in the first place. Is that sale important to the Biden administration? They kind of froze it for a while. It appears from the latest round of announcements, uh, Secretary Blinken's announcement that I just saw a few minutes ago before I joined you, that the United States is prepared to move forward with the deal. This is after some Emirati spokesman said to the American media that they were no longer interested. And the Emirates has also just signed a large deal with France for the supply of advanced jets and some other military equipment. But at the time, they said that wasn't a substitute for the F-35s. So I think this is part of the negotiating process. It really isn't about Israel, although there is this question of the American commitment to Israel's qualitative military edge that was part of the Biden administration review, as I understood from Secretary Blinken's statement. So do you foresee similar missions to Bahrain and Morocco by Prime Minister Bennett? Assuming that they are prepared to receive him, I'm sure he'd be delighted to go. You know, one of the interesting things about this in terms of Israeli politics is that the visit took place right at the six-month point in the Bennett-Lapid government. And it took place after several plans by Netanyahu to visit the Emirates, which fell through for a variety of reasons and never took place. So I think politically, this should be a plus for Bennett. It certainly must be frustrating for Netanyahu. I can imagine that he's not really happy about it. But I will say that, you know, to Bennett's credit, I think he gave Netanyahu credit for the agreement in the first place. And hopefully, you know, Israeli politics can get kind of nasty, but hopefully everybody will see the national interest in pursuing this relationship. So I was going to ask you, I don't know if you've spent enough time in Abu Dhabi ahead of Prime Minister's visit, but what was the mood among citizens there? I mean, was it even on their radar that the Prime Minister of Israel was coming to town? Well, I wasn't there when the announcement was made. I think as is usually the case when Israeli leaders visit Arab countries, at least, and the announcement of the visit is only made very shortly before the visit actually takes place for security reasons. So I don't think there was much time for the local population to absorb that he was coming, but I'm not aware of any opposition to the visit. There may be some people somewhere who didn't like it, but certainly generally the sense that I get is that Emiratis are proud of this relationship that they're developing, that they see this as you know, a part of their program of being a modern, advanced country that's open to everybody and embraces lots of different people and backgrounds. So, Well, we look forward to seeing more developments in that region, and we're so glad that you're on the ground there to, to witness them for us and report back. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Manya. Thank you for inviting me. It was very nice talking to you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me this week is Melanie Marin-Pell, AJC's Chief Field Operations Officer and Director of AJC Louisville. 
Melanie, we are so grateful that you are safe and sound after the deadly tornadoes that tore through Kentucky last weekend, and we extend our condolences to all six states where so many lost their lives, but especially Kentucky, where I believe the death toll is approaching 80 victims. How are you? I am so very sorry that you are experiencing this loss, but how are you? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Well, thank you, Manya, so much. And a huge thank you to really the entire country and entire world, which has wrapped its arms around Kentucky in the most beautiful way in light of what was a really horrific and devastating series of storms and deadly tornadoes, as you mentioned. I live in Louisville, which is about 200 miles away from the area that was impacted. We did have storms, but nothing at all like what was experienced in Western Kentucky. There are 11 counties in Kentucky that incurred damage. And what people are seeing on the news and hearing about the most are the communities of Mayfield, Kentucky, which is a community of about 10,000 people where the candle factory was located. Quite a few deaths there. And then also in Warren County, which is where Bowling Green, Kentucky is. Bowling Green is the home of Western Kentucky University. It's near Mammoth Cave. It's on the way to Nashville. It's a really interesting diverse immigrant community. A lot of immigrants have settled in Bowling Green. And as the news of the families and more information about who was lost and who was impacted has come out, what we've learned is that in Bowling Green, there were a number of members of one Bosnian family, including a number of their children who were killed. There was a Burmese refugee who was killed. We know that there are recently relocated Afghan families in Bowling Green who were impacted. I don't believe anyone was killed, but you can only imagine the trauma that some of these people have been through multiple times in their lives and to be relocated to what is such a, you know, sort of a quiet, relatively, you know, there's not a particularly dramatic type of lifestyle in places like Bowling Green suddenly to be upended yet again is just unimaginable. There are some really beautiful stories First of all, President Biden is on the ground today in Kentucky. He is there with members of Congress, uh, with our governor, and with other community leaders. But the way the community has rallied, and by community, I mean every corner of Kentucky, but again, across the country and across the world, the outpouring from the faith communities has been extraordinary. And I was so heartened to learn that Israel, the consulate of Israel, which is based in Atlanta that covers Kentucky, was really, as I understand it, one of the first calls the governor received was from the Israeli consulate saying, how can we help, what do you need? Israel has to date provided many pallets of water. Drinkable water is so important, that happened immediately. And I spoke today to the Consul General of Israel and they are putting together 400 backpacks for children that they are delivering to a school and to a church by the recommendations of the governor's office, that that is what the need was, where they could, where they could help The Chabad of Kentucky has organized and has been on the ground, and this happened on a Friday night. So many people who are Shomer Shabbos didn't learn about this until Saturday night, and by Sunday were on the ground with trucks full of goods, water, food, clothing, toys. The response just has really been extraordinary. I know some of our partners here in Louisville in the Muslim community, including Muslims for Compassion, which is an organization that AJC has worked with, and they are our partners in our Muslim Jewish Advisory Council here in Louisville. Um, They have already been on the ground as well with several trucks full of relief supplies, huge financial contributions coming in and being generated both, you know, through a fund set up by the governor, through the Jewish Federation of Louisville, through the Muslim community. It's really, really a comprehensive 
and beautiful response. Well, I know uh, Governor Andy Bashir has family in Mayfield. I think he has roots there. And I was really quite moved by what he said earlier this week. He discovered as he was on the phone confirming deaths from the storms that he'd been jotting the notes on the back of some notes that his kids took in school on the subject of inertia, which he said seemed so appropriate given all of the many challenges that your fellow Kentuckians have faced this year alone. I mean, the deep freeze in February, the floods in the summer, the spike of COVID cases. And then, of course, just the ongoing drama and pain over the death of Breonna Taylor last year. I mean, that's one of the reasons AJC opened an office in Louisville, right? That's correct. And we knew that, first of all, I am here. I am a native of Kentucky. I'm proud to be from Kentucky. I love this state. And I'm here. And we knew that our voice could help create some of the the bonds, some of the connections, build some of the bridges that uh, sometimes are so often needed and be really added value to what is a small but vibrant Jewish community and organized Jewish presence here in Louisville and across Kentucky. So there has been a lot that has been divisive. There are a lot of reasons people look at Kentucky and make judgments about Kentucky based on you know, maybe who we elect or who's who's representing us in various offices. But what I will say is it's moments like this that I think everyone recognizes that tornadoes are nonpartisan and responses are nonpartisan. And whether the people who are in need are people who are, you know, fifth generation Kentuckians or people who have only been in Kentucky or in the United States for a matter of months, They need help, and everyone recognizes that. And so to the extent that AJC can be adding our voice and our support and our help and amplifying ways to help and support the relief funds, we're really proud to do so. And, you know, again, really grateful to see the response from every corner and every quarter. It's heartwarming, and I hope it sustains. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us and sharing a bit about what you see on the ground there. I do hope you stay safe. And listeners, please take a look at our show notes. In the description for this week's episode, you'll find links to relief funds that you can use to help those in Kentucky. Thank you so much. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. In case you missed it, tune in to last week's episode with the new chairman of Yad Vashem, Danny Dayan, on the dangers of Holocaust denial and distortion. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss next week's conversation with comedian Alex Edelman, who talks to us about his new off-Broadway show, Just For Us, where he explores his Jewish identity through the lens of a meeting of white nationalists he attended. Head to our show notes for a discount code to purchase tickets before the show ends on January 8th. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 